thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So tonight, as we continue our study of the book of Numbers, we're going to enter into the cycle of Balaam, the book of Balaam. And uh, we are looking at six headings in these two chapters, chapters 22 and 23. First, the hiring of Balaam by Balak. Second, the uh, unique incident of Balaam and the ass that is the donkey, the meaning of Balak and Balaam, Balaam's first oracle, Balak's reaction, and the second attempt, and then the second oracle. The impetus behind all of this is the previous military success of Israel. They've gone against... um, some of uh, their enemy, particularly in Sihon and Og, the king of Sihon and king of Og, and they were successful, and now Moab is stirred. They are worried that Israel will come after them. So the current leader of Moab is Balak, and Balak is a strategist. He thinks, he's calculating, and he understands that he may not be able to take them by military force. So he wants to rely on other ways. And he knows of a diviner called Balaam. And the intent of Balak is to call upon Balaam to come and curse Israel. Before we get into the details of all of this, I want to highlight one fundamental, scratch fundamental, big difference between Balak and us. And I want you to spend a little time meditating on this. Actually spend together a little bit of time meditating on this. To show you how much we have strayed from a biblical understanding of the world. Many of us, unfortunately, have lost that biblical understanding of the world. I've told you many times that the key about Catholicism, the one defining aspect of Catholicism, is that it's the religion of the middle. The religion of the middle. I have pointed out that if you look at a sphere, you know that the center of the sphere is where 
it must sustain the highest pressure. Because when the pressure is applied on the sphere, the center will sense that pressure from all sides. Therefore, and perhaps it's counterintuitive, it is far more difficult to be in the center than to be on the edges. What do I mean by edges and center? I mean that if you were to take one aspect of the truth, one sliver of the truth, say, for instance, God is holy. You take His holiness and you let go of His mercy. Holiness, mercy. Consider holiness on, to be on my left-hand side and mercy on my right-hand side. These would be on the edges, if you will. If you were to say that God is holy and forget His mercy, you then have a master-slave relationship to God. You know yourself to be a sinner. You know God to be all-holy, and the two will never meet. You cast yourself in that position, and you will function from that position. It's fairly clear, black and white. Islam tends to function this way. On the other hand, if you were to let go of God's holiness and embrace His mercy, you get into what I call mushy Catholicism. God is merciful, God forgives, therefore we can do whatever we want. It doesn't matter. We'll make it to heaven. Right? Every funeral these days seems to be canonization. Everybody who dies goes straight to heaven. It's also a comfortable position. It's also simple to deal with. And you and I know now, hopefully, that both are wrong. Why? Because they only took a sliver of the truth. Therefore, to lie, you do not have to reject the truth. It is sufficient to reject part of the truth. Catholicism, in this case, embraces both. Yes, God is holy. Ah, but yes, God is merciful. Now notice, that's a more complicated proposition. Why? Because you've got to understand how you put the two together. Another example. Predestination versus free will. Predestination, everything is decided and you have no control over it. Your life is determined without you being able to influence it one way or the other. That's a common view predestination. Do we as Catholics believe in predestination? Absolutely we do. Put predestination on the left-hand side. Now, let's take the other side, free will. Free will says, you decide what you're going to do. You have that power to make a decision and no one coerces you. Do we as Catholics believe in free will? Absolutely. A religion of the middle. Now you've got to find a way to put them together. How can we have free will when there's predestination? How can we say there is predestination when there's free will? It would be much easier and convenient to pick one of the two sides. Calvinists believe in predestination only. There is no free will. When God creates you, He stamps on your soul, heaven or hell, and that's it. And there's nothing you can do about it. 
Many of the non-denominational religion, in a sense, believe in that as well. In a milder form. All you have to do is come and, and take Jesus, declare that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, and you're saved. Well, what, what, what happens if you fall later on? Well, that means you were never saved in the first place. That's a milder form of predestination. There is no free will. Right? Mushi Catholicism, on the other side, is all about free will. You can do whatever you want. God will forgive you. It's a religion of the middle. You have to clam both of them, put them together. That's the strength and richness of the faith, that it does not let go of any part of the truth, but considers all of the truth. And keep in mind that a thousand difficulties, a thousand intellectual difficulties, do not amount to one doubt. The fact that we grapple with difficult concepts, the fact that God left so much of the faith to reason, to human reason, for us to elaborate and understand and perceive and think and write is not a sign of weakness, nor is it a proof that God doesn't exist. On the contrary, it is a sign of God's confidence in His creation and that He wishes to glorify us by that faculty which makes us most resemble Him, our reason. You understand? Catholicism is a reasonable religion. It's a religion that builds on reason. It is not a religion that is solely contained by reason, but neither is it a religion that denies reason. Do you understand? With that in mind, there are two extremes, again, that we should bring together, neither accept, accept, accepting either of them apart from the other. What are they? In the context of what I'm talking about here today. On the one hand, Reason has a daughter called science. And we, as Catholics, must embrace scientific, the scientific method. We, as Catholics, cannot be creationists. That the universe is 5,000 years old and there are only seven. No. Science says otherwise we listen to what science says. We exercise reason. We, as Catholics, cannot be superstitious. We don't believe that the stars out there in heaven are controlling our lives. We do not read horoscopes, which is a sin, by the way. We do not try to divine the future in tea leaves or coffee mugs or any of that nonsense. We do not believe that a blue thingy a blue sphere is able to ward the evil eye. That's superstition. Yeah? That's one side. We, we hold and believe that the world is good. God created it so. There are no strange spirits running in nature behind rocks and trees and whatnot. No, the stars have no powers over us. And no, there, are, there aren't out there some natural forces that somehow can control our lives. That's one side. The other side, though, is, yes, there is such thing as an evil eye. Yes, there are such things as curses and blessings and spells and hexes. In other words, yes, 
there are spiritual activities in which we human beings are engaged because we are made of matter and spirit. Balak, the king of Moab, understood this. He saw it with clarity, up to a point. But he did understand that one of the weapons that he had, that he could use, is spiritual. Let me curse them, and if they're cursed, it's over. That, I believe, is a concept that today many Catholics have a problem with because they tend to sway, especially here in the United States, they tend to sway towards materialism, which is a heresy. In the United States and in Europe, there are two heresies which have combined to form a new kind of heresy. And these are materialism, the belief that all that matters, all that counts is what I can see, sense, touch, The material world is all there is. That is heretical. And the second one is relativism. Your truth, my truth, live and let live type of thing. These two have combined together in our realm and allow each one of us to have our own understanding of the universe and its laws. You have yours, I have mine, so on and so forth. That's nonsense. And it's a denial of the truth of Scripture. That's why you hear me insisting so much on the covenant. And that's why so many of us have a hard time accepting the covenant. Again, the two sides. Many of us have no problem or no difficulty accepting that God blesses us. When in fact it's really a challenge theologically to understand how God could actually bless us. It's not that easy. We take it for granted. But it's really not easy to understand how that works. But we take it for granted. On the other hand, we know God also curse. And that we have a problem with. Yet, Catholicism is a religion of the middle. The covenant is about both. God blesses. God curses. Why? Because He is a Father. And as a Father and Creator... He has the only authority over our lives. We do not. Balak did not have that problem. Balak did not have that challenge. We do. I strongly encourage you, if you have not done so, to check out Father Hemsch and his ministry called Healing the Family Tree. Father Hemsch has a book called Healing the Family Tree. And in that book, he documents all the passages in Scripture where God and Scripture repeatedly state the fact that the sins of the parents will be visited on the children. Another concept that we here, who have become so individualistic and have lost touch with the notion of the family, do not understand or tend to reject. Yet God in Scripture gives us so many examples where this happens. Not so long ago, we've read about um, the rebellion of one Levite, um, um, Korah was his name, and two sons of Reuben. And because of this rebellion, God took them, their wives, and their children down to the abode of the dead alive. 
the children were punished because of the sins of the parents. David, when he committed that sin of adultery with Bathsheba, Nathan the prophet was sent to him and he was told, because of what you have done, the child will die. The child was a baby. The child did not commit any sin because he was a baby. Yet the child died because of the sin of David. We don't want to hear that. We don't want to hear that our actions have consequences. Yet, we are made in the image of God. We too can bless or be Instruments of blessing, rather. And we too can be instruments of a curse. Hence, in your own generation, in your own family, you do not know what sins your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents have committed on both sides. Father Hemsch has a ministry that calls upon the blood of Jesus to heal us and protect us from, these, from the effects of those sins. So as long as, as long as we understand that neither do we reject science, which governs the material world, nor do we reject theology, which governs the spiritual world, but we embrace both, then we begin to see the world biblically. There is no mother nature, and there is no papa nature, and there is no baby nature. There is God, and there is us, and there's the angels. That's all there is. Balak knew that, so he calls upon Balaam. Now, who's Balaam? Balaam was not an Israelite. He was not of the tribe of Israel. He was a Midianite. And the Midianites are related. They're cousins to the Israelites, but they're not Israelites. Balaam was not a prophet. He was a diviner. He was not a sorcerer. Words are important. And we need to, um, to distinguish between what these three categories mean or represent. A prophet is not about foretelling the future. Although he or she can do that from time to time. The purpose of the prophetic gift is to impart the wisdom of God on those who hear it. To open the eyes and minds of people to understand God's will for them. It is far more important for you and me to know what God wants from us today than it is for us to understand what tomorrow is going to be about. It's a far greater writ, uh, a gift for you to know what God wants from you, what will make you happy, than to know what tomorrow is going to be about. You agree? That's prophecy. The source of prophecy is not in the prophet. I want to reiterate that. The prophet has no powers. A prophet does not control, hold, command a prophetic gift. A prophet is merely an instrument that the Holy Spirit uses to show forth His mercy. The work of a prophet, therefore, is a work of mercy. Yeah? Question. Who is a prophet in this church 
Now, hold your fingers up and then point it at your nose. Each one of you. Yeah, thank you. At least one did it. Each one of you is a prophet. How do we know that? The letter of St. Peter. You all share in the gifts and powers and authority of Jesus Christ. Therefore, you're all priest, prophet, and king. We've said that before. You have that prophetic gift available to you. You need to call upon it. Now, how does this prophetic gift express itself? The prophetic gift does need not be something extraordinary. It's not about parting the Red Sea. Well, not always. Well, mostly not always. It's about, um, I have a job offer in Louisiana. Should I go or should I stay? That's where the prophetic gift come into play. You call upon God and you ask Him for His will for you. What must I do? And God, through the Holy Spirit, imparts you with an answer. We take that for granted. We say God answers our prayers as if it's some sort of a magical act. God is answering your prayers because of the gift that Jesus gained for us on the cross where we received the Holy Spirit and we were now endowed with that prophetic gift to understand God's will and be able to interpret it. Do you understand that? And to the degree that you are united with God to the degree that your life is doing His holy will, to that degree is your capacity to prophesy greater. Just as, um, just as if you were, you were living with a known personality, say Mozart, you'd be able to write a biography of Mozart because you know him in ways that others don't. Well, to the degree that you're close to God in your, prayer, prayer, in your life of prayer, to that degree is your prophetic gift greater. Yeah? That's what a prophet is. A diviner is someone who foretells the future. Someone who foretells the future. Again, a diviner is not given powers he is an instrument of God that God uses to speak, to, to foretell future events. In our, in our fascination, in our fascination for, or perhaps in our desire to control our lives, we, unfortunately, place more value and give greater glory to someone who can foretell the future than to someone who can speak the wisdom of God. If Mother Teresa was here and there's a guy standing next to her who can tell you what the winning number of the lotto is tomorrow, inwardly we're drawn to him more than we are to Mother Teresa. You need to realize this about ourselves. This is what Jesus says and warns of in the book of Revelation when he says there are those who who are pursuing the deep things of Satan. Because in every one of us, there is this desire that comes from original sin to know good and evil. The road forks. Either 
you try to know the future for the purpose of controlling it, or you completely let go of a control and become like a child so that God may pick you up and do with you what He wills. These are the choices. Original sin bends us towards control, towards the knowledge of the future, towards finding and figuring out what we need to do. Diviner can only tell you what is going to happen. There are diviners today who exorcists make use of. For instance, in the book by Father Amorth, who was a head exorcist in Rome, he says that in the case of a hex, which is a form of a curse imposed on someone by using an object that belongs to this person, there is no way to break this hex until you find the object. And oftentimes, the, one, the perpetrator of that, um, of that uh, evil act would hide the object somewhere. And it's nearly impossible to find. Father Amorth relies on people who uh, are able to touch an object that belongs to the victim, close their eyes, and they would say, oh yeah, that object is buried under this tree in this place. And they would go, and they would dig, and there is the object. This is a diviner. It's not necessarily about future events, but about spatial objects, where things are. Police can rely on these people as well in finding abducted victims or missing people. Okay? Yes. Uh, the question is, how does the exorcist know that there's a hex versus something else? Read the book. Uh, this detracts too much from this uh, um, study. But read the book by Father Amorth. An exorcist tells his story. He goes through many of these details. Now, a diviner, therefore, has no way of controlling the future or the object in space. That person will tell you what the object is, but there's nothing you can do about it. They can't just materialize the object in front of you. They can't bring it. They have no power. You understand? Okay. A sorcerer is one who wants control. Who wants control. Who wants to control things. Whether events in the future or events in space or people. You understand? Sorcery is a cheap trick of the demons. Angelic beings have powers that are not available to us. They have powers over matter. Because they're pure spirits, they can give us the appearance of movements of such speed that we cannot perceive. So, if there is a bottle here, the sorcerer standing in front of you says some sort of an incantation, and in front of your eyes, the bottle is replaced with a flower, a real flower. Now, the human mind may be tricked in thinking, oh, he actually performed a, a magic act. He turned the bottle into a flower. The truth is that he didn't. A demon took the bottle and brought the flower, substituting one for the other, but they can do it so fast that to our eyes it appears as if one had turned into the other. Do you understand? Magic is always about demonic cheap tricks. There is no white magic and black magic. There's only demonic cheap tricks. You understand? No, 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 no. Question is, when you watch a magic trick, no, no, no. I'm not talking about 
the, the entertainers who manage to trick us. And I'm talking about folks who are either witches or warlocks or sorcerers or who really get into that stuff. Yes. Yes. If he's levitating, if he's truly levitating, yes, the source of it would typically be demonic. And that's actually one sign that, uh, uh, that indicates supernatural activity. Yes. Thank you. Illusionists are different. Thank you. Illusionists are folks who are very crafty with their hands and are able to trick you. Right? However, there is a blurring of the line. It is entirely possible for an illusionist to become a sorcerer in their constant quest of you know, greater, greater tricks. They can fall into that, that trap. But that's what a sorcerer is. Now, why is that important? Because in this case, Balaam is talking to God. God is talking to Balaam, right? So it's important to understand that God can, does, give some folks preternatural gifts, abilities that go beyond nature for specific reasons. Sometimes we don't fully understand the reason, but it does happen. Yes. Psychic is a different category altogether. The problem with psychics is that no one can read your mind. That is against God's law. Why? Because if I can read your mind, what have I done? I have impinged upon your free will. No one can read... You understand that? No one can read your mind. Your inner thoughts are not visible to anyone, including the demons. They don't have power to know what you're thinking about. But most of the time, they don't need that power. If you've observed children for a while, and you know that this is a kid you've never seen before, he's four years old, and you know that he put a candy over there, you know the kid is just going to be drawn to the candy like a piece of metal to the magnet. You don't need to read the mind to know that, do you? If you've been teaching kids for a while and you have a new kid coming into your class, within a couple of hours you figure it out that kid. You're reading his or her mind? No, you don't need to. It's behavior. It's behavior. And we are so predictable. Yeah? Okay, put a pile of cash. Right? Put, a, put food. Yeah? Sex. That's pretty much it. 80% of everything that goes wrong in this world is related to these three things, isn't it? Right? 80% of all the sins committed in the world is probably related to those three things. You really need to read somebody's mind to figure that out? No. No, you don't. You understand? They don't need to. But they're able to suggest. So they see you walking by and there is this, there is this, uh, they know, they've been observing you and you know, they know you're interested in clothing, you don't have enough money and you're walking by a storefront, and there's this dress, and they've looked at you, and they know this dress fits you, and they right there can see, uh, they, they can cause a twinkle in your eye, can do something to get you to, to look. And when, they, when you look, oh, isn't that a nice dress? And you think it's your own thoughts, but actually it's not. Okay? So they're, very, they're all about tricking us. That's what they do. That's what they do. Uh, somebody is late. Observe, somebody's late to a meeting, or somebody's late bringing you food, right? You're hungry, they went out to bring you food. You've estimated 
20 minutes. It's been an hour. What kind of mental state are you in? Are you full of charity and compunction and you're kneeling before the cross and thanking the Lord for what's happening and praying for them and for their protection? Is, is that what comes through? No. Right? No, the demons kick in. Yeah. They're all over you stro- stroking that self-love, selfishness, and they're suggesting all these, oh, they took their time. They don't care. They're this and then the other. And by the time they show up to the door, you're just about to declare World War III. Right? See, we're predictable. We're predictable. So they don't need to, do that, to know that. All right. All of this, told you all of this for a number of reasons. Observe how they look at the world. They take it for granted that these preternatural forces are given. Now, where does Balak go wrong? He thinks that God, the Lord, is like any other gods. That he's fickle. Okay? Sorcery is based upon the notion that I can control the source of the power. Provided I offer the right sacrifice, I threw the right bone to the dog, the dog will do what I want. That's how a sorcerer functions. God is about to teach Balak a lesson. Because Balak tells Balaam, come over and curse them. All right? Now what happens? Balaam knows what is the source of his power. He knows it's not him. You have to give him credit. He's not saying, oh yeah, I am mighty Balaam. I can do whatever you want. He doesn't say that. When, they, when they, he sends him dignitaries to ask him to come over, he says... Lodge here the night, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So, obviously, Balaam is also interested in cursing Israel. He's hoping God is going to agree with him. So, he tells them, stay with me. Let me see what God's going to say. But notice, no power. If he had power, he would say, yeah, let's go. Grab my staff, put on the ring, and we'll go take them on. And No, he doesn't. Okay, so now. Okay. And God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? Poor God, he doesn't know. You know, he doesn't know who those people are. Is, he, is that why you're asking this question? Is, can that remind you of another question? In a different setting? Where's your brother? Where are you? God is walking in the garden and Adam is hiding. He's playing hide and seek. And God says, Where are you? Poor God. He can't see Adam. Really? This is divine pedagogy. This is what we use with kids, right? Kid comes to you, four years old, and his face is smudged with chocolate. What do you do? You say, what were you doing? You really don't know? What does the kid say? He looks at you, nothing. See what's going on here? Now, this is key, because if you read the accounts of other mythologies, whether it's Greek, Mesopotamian, Phoenician, Egyptian, you name it, there isn't that paternalistic approach. Aurora is is a goddess in the Greek pantheon. She fell in love with a mortal. She wanted that mortal to stay with her forever. So she went and asked Zeus, right, the head honcho. Zeus says, okay, no problem. Notice how the gods are fickle. So he grants him immortality, but forgets a small detail. 
he doesn't stop him from aging. Fast forward 200 years, the poor guy is a crumbly little old thing. What does Aurora do? No, she turns him into a grasshopper. The fickleness of the gods. There is no paternalistic pedagogy. There is no, what are you doing here? Why did you do that? What are we trying to do? There is none of that. There's grasshoppers, yeah. All right. You understand? This is important to realize this kind of conversation between God and us is key. And most often than not, God comes to us in the same way. What are you doing? You know, half of you is in the freezer, bent over a five-pound tub of ice cream. Nothing. Are you sure you want to eat all this ice cream? What do you usually say? Oh, leave me alone. Yeah. Okay, here it is. Who are these men? Why is God asking? It's already, you know, it's a reproach. You do that the same way. You get in the house, and your kid is sitting there, and there's 22 friends. You didn't invite them. So what do you say to the kid? You bring them over. What do you say? Who are these people? You are expressing reproach through your question. What do you expect from the kid? What, do you, what, what kind of answer you want from the kid? What is the key word you want to hear? I'm sorry. That's what you're hoping to hear. The deed is done. It's over. You know exactly what happened. But what are you hoping is going to happen when you come and confront the kid with the truth? You expect compunction, sorrow. Yeah? Let's see. check out what Balaam says. What? Correct, and that's because the reason why most of the time the kids are not on the same wavelength with us is because we are not on the same wavelength with God. So God does not grant us the blessing to have sorrowful kids when we are not sorrowful. You understand? Yeah. So, here, Balaam. Um, And Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Behold, the people has come out of Egypt, and it covers the face of the earth. Now come, curse for me, them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight against them and drive them out. Now, he omitted the fact that he's going to be paid in the process. He just made it look really good. You know, that good you know, buddy of mine, the Moabites, they're really close to us. There's these people coming out of Egypt, and uh, they're, they're the bad guys. I'm going to go help him. And I'll be paid in the process. But never mind that, God. You don't need, you don't, you don't need to, to know that. This is how we often do ourselves, right? We tinker with the truth. This is why the saints always tend, in many cases, to exaggerate their, their sins. Not be out of false humility, but out of prudence. Because more often than not, whatever we, can, we confess in the, in the confessional is probably half as bad as what we really did. We don't tend to confess the whole truth. So, if you want to grow in holiness, get in the habit of exaggerating your sins, and you probably be halfway close to the truth. So, if let's say you were home and you were really hungry, you're really hungry, and there was nothing to eat, and you took that tub of ice cream, one pounder, and you ate the whole thing. When you go to confession, do not say, 
I was hungry. Say, I ate one pound of ice cream by myself. And you're probably halfway close to the truth. Because what you're not saying is, I was resentful. I was um, probably uh, angry. I was also, uh, I refused to hear, uh, to do God's will. I wanted to do my own. I was selfish. And I fell into gluttony. Now that's a lot closer. Do you understand? All right. And what helps is not to defend yourself when somebody says something to you. Kill that ugly habit. And it is really ugly. We don't see it, but it is very ugly. It stinks to the high heavens. When somebody comes and says, why didn't you clean the counter? You were not supposed to clean the counter. You understand? You didn't have to clean the counter. You didn't do anything wrong. Why didn't you clean the counter? Do not say, I didn't have to clean the counter. Why are you asking me? What's wrong with you? Then you know, I didn't have to clean it. Say instead, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't clean it. Please forgive me. <laughs> yeah. You know what happens in your mind right now when you're listening to me talk like this? Pride is putting the brakes. And pride right now is giving you about 12 different reasons why what I'm saying makes no sense. So you have two choices. You can sit here and rationalize this, all right, and stay exactly where you are, sitting on a pile of you-know-what that is about 16 feet deep, or you can just get on with it and do it, and then see how God rewards you richly, because you have agreed to humble yourself. Yeah, that's the kind of work that God expects from us. The Beatitudes, right? Blessed are you if someone reviles you, and say all sorts of things about you, false things, in my name. Rejoice and be glad. Well, you're not going to get to rejoice and be glad if someone comes home and says, why didn't you clip the counter and you didn't have to clean it and you start excusing yourself. There's no rejoicing, there's no gladness. Yeah? Just exactly what I told you. This is what I would want to do. It doesn't mean that I can do it. Right? Because... Give the devil his due. He knows how to really layer the situation, prepare it. You're tired, you're hungry, you're already exasperated, you're tense, you're stressed, you have 14 things to do, and then somebody comes, somebody usually who you love, says this to you. Unless you are really praying more and more to do God's will, right? you don't receive the peace on that moment to do the right thing. So it's an uphill battle. But you know what? Every bit counts. Every bit counts. God the Father is, can move mountains and convert countries if we do just a bit of that. Not if we succeed. Not even that. Just a bit. Think of it this way. You're a kid. Family is the other Holy Bible. The family is the way God teaches us about him all the time. You have a kid. He'd been trouble for a good portion of his life. Doesn't listen, rebellious, you name it. Never a polite word. Only foul language coming out of his mouth. The whole bit. And then one day, 
one day, he comes to you, and on a piece of paper, he drew a flower using black ink, no color. And next to the flower, he wrote, please forgive me. Now, what do you think of that flower? Won't you think the world of it? It's an ugly thing, objectively speaking. But wouldn't you think the world of it? Yeah, this is how God is with us. Most of the time, that's what we're offering him, a stinky, bl- ugly flowers. That's all we can do. But he rejoices because he sees our intent. But when we start, no, but I, I no, how could, it's not me, it's the woman. You put her in here. She did this. Don't accuse me. I didn't do anything. Why are you saying to me, Moses, that I built the golden calf, Aaron said. I was just standing here and they gave me all this gold and the gold molded itself in the gold. I didn't do anything. And on and on it goes. So many occasions of graces, so many gifts lost because of pride. Because we don't want to humble ourselves. So get in that practice. So that's what he says to God. All right. So now, God, observe, God doesn't upbraid him. doesn't say, who told you to receive them? I didn't say anything. Observe how God respects his free will. But now he tries to guide him. And he says to him, all right, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. God is stating a fact. When was Israel blessed? Before Jacob. Abraham. The covenantal blessing that went forth from God will not be taken back. Even though they have acted in such a disobedient way towards him, the blessing remains. Look how powerful the impact of Abraham's life has been on these people. The life of one man. One man affected a blessing on a whole nation. Yes, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Especially in the family. When parents curse their children, it's a terrible thing. God respects it. Does cursing come from the devil or from God? When you shoot a bullet, does it come from the devil or from God? Same thing. Cursing is a spiritual weapon. Blessing is a spiritual weapon. It's a weapon. No different than a physical weapon. There are laws around it that God established. There are laws around it that God established. And then God gave us the free will to make use of them. Do you understand? Yeah. So therefore, the power to curse or bless comes from God. The devil has no, no say in it. All that the devil can do is whisper in our ears. But we have that power because of the covenant. And hence, our lives affect our children. And notice... We don't have to speak, by the way, to bless or curse our children. There's no need of that. A man goes to church, gets his family into the church, and they're in there, and he goes and stands outside. Is any one of them reversible? Um, Usually, when the blessing goes forth, especially the blessing of the uh, uh, oldest son, it is not reversible. As in the case of Isaac, when he thought he was blessing Esau and blessing Jacob. There's nothing he can do. He can take it back. The blessing went forth, right? Now, the curses are, in and of themselves, are not reversible. But there is a higher power 
in the blood of Jesus Christ. Where the blood of Jesus is so powerful that it breaks these things, provided we ask for it. But Jesus is not going to impose His mercy on us if we don't ask for it. That's why I say look into that book by Father Hemsch called Healing the Family Tree. Well, yeah, of course, you can if you donate or you pray. You can affect the mercy of God. But you have to ask specifically for the blood of Christ to, re, to, to take that curse away. Right? And the, the book Healing the Family Tree explains that very, very well. And so I recommend really to read this book. It's a very powerful book. Uh, you can Google it. Yeah, many places. Yeah, many, many places. Yeah. You're welcome. So then, um, you shall not go to them, you shall not curse them. All right. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the prince of Balak, Go to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So they go back. All right. Here's where Balak goes wrong. He doesn't know God, so he thinks he's one of those fickle gods. Okay, I didn't send enough, so let me do it again. So, he does it again. He sends a second delegation. They come back. And then God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only what I bid you, that shall you do. So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his ass and went with the prince of Moab, but God's anger was kindled because he went. I'm going to let you stew on this for a second. I'm going to take a quick break here, but I want you to think about that. He told him, go, but only speak what I say. He goes, and God's kindled Anger is kindled against him. Okay. So yeah, what Leon was saying is that the reason why he would be angry is because uh, Balaam is essentially trading his gift for money. I think there is a good element of truth there. Think of it this way. You're talking to, to your son about gaming. Now, um, computer games is one of those nefarious things that push kids away from prayer. I don't care what they say about how wonderful your reflexes are and how your neurosensors develop, yada, yada, yada. All that might be true, and it probably is true, but they take kids away from prayer. Most gamers don't pray, don't have time to sit down and really meditate or spend an hour before the Blessed Sacrament, because the two are opposite to each other. On one hand, your senses are being completely overloaded. On the other hand, you have to sit down and then wait for God to do something with you. You just cannot do both. You're going to go schizophrenic. Gaming, I noticed, in boys or teenagers, promote disrespect. Because they play, they play, they play them to stop, they stop, they're irritated, they're not satisfied, they'll never be satisfied, so they become disrespectful. So, now, you're dealing with your son and you say to him, okay, look, now, you know fundamentally you want him to play. That's what you, because you know this is what's really good for him. You want to pull him away from that. But he's talking about games. His friends came over and they want to play a game. He's talking to you about a game. So you say, okay, look, if you play this game, I only want you to play one hour. What does the kid do? No, no, not even that. Well, it's not that he agrees. Not even. He agrees with glee. He's really happy. And he says, okay, and he runs. Now, what is that? It's a form of disrespect. He's not paying heed to what you're saying to him. That's what's going on here. You understand? Why is Balaam going with them? He knows he can't curse these people. So why is he going? Money. God is speaking to him. The guy is running after money. Remember what I told you so many times? Do not confuse external gifts 
given for the service of others with interior holiness. Somebody who can perform stuff, somebody who can teach the scripture eloquently, all these are external gifts given by God for others. Holiness is all about interior fruits, about the virtues. You understand? Yes. The question is, what would be the right response? Well, the right response would be not to receive them and let them enter his house in the first place. Yes, that would be the right response. But once he got them in, right, that's it. He wants them in because he wants them in. You understand? He's succumbing to the whole thing. Probably there's also pride. There is showing forth what he can and cannot do. There's money. There's all of this. So he goes. So God's anger is kindled against him. And what happens? The Lord... So he was riding on the ass, and his two servants were with him. And the ass saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. So who saw the Lord? The donkey. Yeah. So, number one, this is not Walt Disney. This is the only instance in Scripture where God gives an animal the rational ability. So God now is suspending the laws of nature and giving this animal rational abilities. Yeah? Now you think this is strange? Well, as Catholics, you shouldn't. Because that is nothing compared to a human being who is able to eat God. Right? If God can give himself to us in his body and blood, soul and divinity and turn our mortal being into a divine being, what is it for him to actually provide an ass with rational thought for about five minutes? You understand? So, now the donkey sees the angel why is it interesting? What's, why is it ironic? Why do we find it funny? Because what is Balaam? He is a what? A diviner. He's supposed to see the future. He can't see a thing and the donkey sees. How humiliating could that be? Not only that, he starts beating the poor animal who's trying to save his life. Then the animal speaks. Quite rationally, observe how the animal being beaten speaks. And I want you to think about how you would respond. Okay. And she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And here's the funny part. And Balaam said to the ass. And just kind of think about it for a second. (laughs) Beating a donkey. And the donkey turns around and says, What have I done to you? That you beat me three times. What would you do? You probably drop the rod and start running and not stop until you reach Antarctica or something, and screaming all the way. Why didn't he? Why didn't he? Observe the. See the irony. If you read it slowly, you observe the irony. God is talking to us. So, what have I done to you that you struck me these three times? Said she in perfect Aramaic. And Balaam said to the ass, "Because you have made sport of me." I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. The donkey. Now, saying to the donkey, you made sport of me. Meaning what? You humiliated me. And I wish I had a sword, I would kill you. 
What is the irony here? What is in the hand of the angel? What is he going to do to Mr. Balaam? Kill him. He's wishing upon himself. Do to others what you wish you... Yeah. Yeah. There's the angel with a sword, Balaam with a stick, and the poor donkey. And he wants to kill the donkey. He's so mad that the donkey made fun. Uh, observe. You see what I said earlier about the guy who was hungry, waiting for the... Immediately these thoughts come into our mind that they're making... They're humiliating. They're not taking us into consideration. They're not respect... Blah, 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 blah. Right? That's what he's doing. He's thinking the donkey is making fun of him. You know, you're riding on a highway, driving on a highway, there's this guy who's acting erratically next to you, just coming in front or back or doing something strange. You immediately ascribe, or you have a tendency, or we have a tendency to ascribe to the driver ill intent. They're making fun of us. Or they're doing this on purpose. Meanwhile, the guy is completely oblivious that we're there and are having other problems, maybe talking on the phone, who knows, right? Watch out for those things. This is what he's doing. He's accusing a donkey to make fun of him. I mean, it's... Okay. And the ass said to Balaam, Am I not your ass upon which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Was I ever accustomed to do so to you? And he said, No. I mean, this is a surrealistic conversation. No. He thought about it. No, actually, he didn't. Right? Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed his head and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your ass these three times? Behold, I have come forth to withstand you, because your way is perverse before me. And the ass saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have slain you and let her live. And Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that thou didst stand in the road against me. Now therefore, if it is evil in thy sight, I will go back again. Here's the crux of the matter. I will go back. Right? The crux of the matter, he should not have gone in the first place. Observe, when we act on impulse, when we do not think what we're doing, when we act simply because we want to satisfy our selfish motives, it is like we just planted a poisoned seed. And it will grow, it will flower, it will blossom, and it will destroy us. You understand? Especially your tongue. Watch your tongue. Especially with your children. Do not curse your children. You do not know what you're doing when you do that. I say this especially to mothers. When you do that, you are an anti-Mary. You understand what I'm saying to you? You are in opposite side of uh, the extreme side of her. The exact opposite when you curse your children. When you abuse a child in words or in gesture. When you wish for a child never to have existed, never to have been born. You are an anti-Mary. Do not allow your emotions to take you there. That is why all mothers need an ordered life of prayer, without which you cannot fulfill your Christian duty. You must pray on your own. You must take time every day to pray. 
lest you become like Balaam and the donkey. All right, moving on. He gets there. And while there, Balak tells him, okay, what should we do? And he says, set me up seven, seven altars with seven rams. And uh, he is about to essentially offers, uh, offer up a sacrifice, which he does. He offers up a sacrifice because there is no blessing and cursing without a sacrifice, right? And he opens up his mouth and blessing comes forth. So Balak is upset with him. And what does he think? Okay, let's try a second time. Why does he think trying a second time will change? Because he does not know God. He thinks God is fickle, like all the other pagan gods. Right? It is known, it is well known in many different uh, stories, like for instance in the Greek myth- mythologies, that if you actually pester the gods enough, they might change their minds. In fact, Jesus utilizes this in one of his parables about the old woman who goes and knocks at the door of the judge over and over and over again. Right? But he uses it, he tra- transforms it into a sign of fortitude and sign of faith. Because the woman has no power over the judge. She's not performing an act of magic. She is putting her trust that the judge can be swayed. Whereas these guys are trying to control the guys, the gods based on the fickleness of their nature. So Jesus changes the whole story completely. Nevertheless, that's what he tries to do. And again, Balak stands up, Balaam stands up, opens his mouth. And a blessing comes forth. There's nothing he can do. He can only bless because he has no power. Right? As the gentleman asked earlier, it is not in Balaam's power to curse Israel. He could curse them all day long. The blessings of Abraham protects them. That curse will not carry forward. So a stranger out there curses you. It doesn't mean you're cursed. You understand that? Okay, somebody out there decides to curse you. It doesn't mean you're cursed. Curse is a spiritual weapon. It's like somebody shooting at you. If you have a shield, you're protected. Yeah? That's different. Mother first. Grandma second. Both will apply. Both will apply. Blessings and curses. Yeah. Yeah. God respects our free will. If a father blesses and a mother curses, first of all, there is dissension in the family to begin with. All right? No. No. No, it doesn't work that way, unfortunately. The father is the head of the family, so it is up to him to lead his family in the um, knowledge of God and in holiness. But when it comes to the power of the covenant, they're equally given to mothers and fathers. Both share in that power. So recognize this and understand that it's a great responsibility that God entrusts you with. That's why St. Paul says, bless and do not curse. He didn't mean do not swear. He meant do not curse. Yes. How do you know if you're cursed? Um... That's a very good question. How do you know if you are under a curse? Usually, and I'm not an expert. I'll say this right away. I can tell you only what I've read. Usually there are um, signs of 
illnesses or lack or, or misfortunes that are either inexplicable or incurable. So someone who has, let's say, um, stomach ache, and he's seen 20 doctors, he's seen specialists, and everybody says, all your tests are normal, blood count is normal, everything is normal, we, we don't understand where it's coming from. That's when you start suspecting. Now, it could be you need to see psychologists. Maybe there's psychological stuff. Again, I'm no expert, all right? But let's say you've covered the gamut. You've been to doctors, psychologists, and everybody says, no, nah, looks fine to me. There's nothing. Then, since science is unable to provide a root cause that is measurable, that can be seen, that could be understood and cured, that's when you start to suspect something else of a different nature. You understand? Yeah. Yes. My bad. I didn't necessarily mean that in all cases your blood work will look fine. I was just giving a very clear example. But there are cases where, let's say, your blood work shows you have a problem, but nothing seems to heal it. Take this medication, that medication, nothing seems to work. Right? So you begin to suspect. You don't conclude. It takes a priest. It takes somebody with the gift of healing to recognize it for what it is. You understand what I'm saying? Okay, yes. I don't know if you can look at your ancestors. The question is, can you look at your ancestors and see if, how things have happened? I don't know if you can really fully ascertain. There are some cases where it's very, very clear that perhaps there is something. You suspect something. No, no, no. no. Vices alone do not carry curses. It's sins that does. Right? It is possible, yes, that it carries forward. Absolutely. So... The, the key, though, is, again, to talk to priests who really specialize in this area. I am not your reference on this. Right? I know only a little bit. Um, yeah, there is a lot of prayer, b- books on spiritual warfare and prayers. But what I'm talking about here is a specific ministry for healing. It's a gift. It's one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit to be able to heal that God gives His church. It's one of the charisms of the church to have the healing power of Christ. And I'm saying to you is that there are priests who really are specializing in this area. This is who you call upon. Now, on the other hand, you know how it is. If I re- were to read to you symptoms of some sort of a strange disease, about half the people here will think they have it. It's one of the things about us. We said, oh, yeah, I have, maybe I have it. So I don't want us to be, get carried away either in concluding that because you have a recurring headache that it is a curse. Well, maybe not. It just may be part of... You know, whatever, right? So we need to, again, science and the spiritual world, not just one or the other. Yes. Yes, so, so absolutely. As I said, emotional, psychological, etc. Unwilling to forgive will create a whole host of problems. If you're holding grudges against somebody and you're unwilling to forgive, that's going to create a whole host of its own issues. Now, remember, unwilling to forgive does not mean that you feel all giddy and joyful towards this person. Forgiveness simply means that you will, for God, not to, essentially, not to act in full justice towards them. You're saying to God, do not remember their sins on account of me. Let it go, God. That's forgiveness. You might still be angry and having, you know, have to go through, um, you know, sessions and stuff to be able to heal the emotions, but your will is what matters. Some people get torture themselves over this because their emotions are not there yet. They can't think of the person. They cannot see them. They just have this reaction. They think I haven't, they haven't forgiven them. They have nothing to do with it. 
Yes. This is a very good question. Is cursing always a sin? No, it isn't. It isn't. Uh, there is a case of St. Francis who had a follower and who wanted to join him. And St. Francis prayed and then told the man, you're accursed. You will never join me. And that man committed suicide two weeks later. Yeah. St. Peter, talking to the couple, right, who sold everything and gave only part of it to the church. Not two bucks, a good chunk of it. And they kept the rest of themselves. St. Peter said, did we ask you to do this? No, we didn't. So what did you keep some to yourself? Okay. And the man dropped dead on the spot. And the woman came and he said, the man who is carrying your husband to the cemetery will come and carry you too. And she dropped dead on the spot. It's not always the curse. But in the case of a family, I would say more often than not it is. Because in the case of St. Peter or St. Francis, there was no resentment, hatred, anger, selfishness. They were speaking the word of God. Jesus himself curses. Remember when he cursed the fig tree? The gospel of St. Matthew? He cursed the tree. said, you will never bear fruit again. And the tree wizard on the spot. He cursed the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Brood of vipers. No, God curses. You've got to understand this. And we are going to see that when we do Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Oh boy, are we going to see that. But in the case of the family, most of them, we do it out of selfishness. You understand? Towards our children. And that's what is not, this is always sinful. We shouldn't be doing that. Yes. Then I would recommend, go see Father Bevilacqua and have him pray over you. Absolutely. This is... It doesn't mean that you're necessarily not going to amount to anything, but there is a form of oppression on you. Right? It always weighs on this weight. is a form of oppression. A priest with a healing ministry can deal with that. Yeah, this is a form of a curse. Well, they can try, but they have no authority over you. The difference is the covenant. Do you understand? In the covenant of marriage, what is marriage? St. Paul told us this, and it's very profound. Marriage between a man and a woman is imaging what? The relationship of Jesus to his church, right? That relationship is based on the covenant of Jesus and his blood. That covenant carries blessings and curses. Those sins you shall forgive are? That's blessing. Those sins you shall retain are? That's a curse. Yeah? Because of this, in the sacrament of marriage, the same applies over the people in your household. Right? Your friend is not part of your household. You're not part of his household. Therefore, there is no... Right? This is why a hex is a different business because they have to take something physical of you and there's some sort of a messy business in there. But a curse acts within the realm of your authority. Right? When you don't have that authority over somebody, you can try, but it's not going to work. Yes? You see, yeah, that's a form of a curse towards the parents. It's not as effective as the curse from a parent to the child. Because the child has no authority over you. You understand? It's again the covenantal authority that matters. Right? And this is why I say that again. It is important for children before they're married to seek the blessings of their parents. 
That's a powerful thing. Yes. Okay, good question. God cursed Adam and Eve. Indeed, He did. In Genesis, do we still carry those curses? What is the answer? Yes and no. Yes for those who are not baptized. No for those who are baptized. Pardon? Well, let's say baptized, because if you have a baby baptized and dies right away, he is in heaven. But the effects of the, of, of the, uh, the curse are still with us. Death and suffering and all that. God didn't take those away. He kept them. Right? He kept those. But He removed the, uh, the, um, uh, the destructive aspect of the curse, which is giving us to the devil. That's taken away. And now He gave us the power to take these, this curse and turn it upside down on its head by making it a blessing. Because if you join your suffering and your pain and your sorrows with the, those of Christ on the cross, you're gaining glory for yourself, for eternity. That's why God didn't take away the sufferings and the pain, because they are now instruments of grace. Do you understand? So what is the question? Yeah. When a man takes a gun and shoots somebody else, aren't they determining their fate and destiny? The other person is dead. No different. Yeah, of course. Of course they will. Absolutely. Again, the question is, when a parent curses a child, aren't they simply stifling the child, stopping, stopping him in their way? Isn't that something against God? It's, it's not God's intended will for us. It is His permissive will. He allows this to happen because He gave us free will. Just as He gave us the ability to use a knife or a spoon... I suppose you can murder somebody with a spoon or poison or whatever. Don't get too... You see, it's really a sign of our imbalance with the understanding of our nature. Nobody thinks twice about the fact that somebody can take a gun and shoot somebody else, which is horrible. And it happens far more and far more often than anybody cursing anybody. But when it comes to curses, for some reason we get really... Jittery, because we don't see it. And we don't like the stuff we don't see. But it's no different. It's no different in its principle. It's a weapon in your hands. And you need to, be, to use it very carefully. In fact, here in the United States, it's very interesting. And I think there's a lot of uh, um, a truth to it. Apparently, one of the Indian chiefs that was captured during the war between the, the, the whites and the Indians, when he was captured, he cursed the presidents of the United States. And he said that every fourth president will die. Go back and check history. All the way to Reagan, every fourth president died in office. On the clock. No, it was, it was George W. Bush. It looks like it broke. Uh, it, I think it got broken with Reagan. He didn't die. He didn't die. So, yeah, curses are very powerful, but so are atomic weapons. All right? Just recognize that it's part of who we are. We're, we are material and spiritual. Right? And please, don't just think about curses. 
Think about blessings. Think about what you can do. Think about all the good you can do by blessing people. And notice how the devil is very smart about it because he stifled. He took out of our language all that. All the God bless you that we don't say anymore. It is not necessary for us to see. It isn't if we bless someone, we shouldn't necessarily expect that the fruits of the blessing are apparent to our eyes. Perfect example of St. Bernadette Subiru. St. Bernadette Subiru was blessed by Our Lady in an apparition, yet she had tuberculosis. Let's not confuse health and wealth with blessing. Not about that. When you bless a child, you're imparting upon that child, of your child, the love of God. You're bringing that child closer to God. You're opening his mind and heart and soul to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to the inspiration of the God and angel. You're making him truly a child of God. That's all. That's what counts. Now, how will God use that fertile soul, soul now that you've prepared to further his glory is up to God. Not necessarily obvious to us. However, one thing you notice about children who are living in families who are blessed is that their lives more or more overall is is, uh, has no regrets in it. One of the sting of curses is regrets that do not heal. Children who are blessed may suffer, may have pains, may have sorrow, but there are no regrets. And there is an abiding joy which is due to the presence of the Holy Spirit. Yes, absolutely. The blessings of parents is powerful, very powerful. Instead of having oppression, there's a sense of elevation of freedom, of courage, of the ability to do things, of trust, of confidence. Very important. Yes. The question is, when you bless your child, can't you think that actually God is blessing you in the process? Well, yeah, maybe He is, but you know, when you love somebody, you're doing something for their own good. You're not thinking about yourself. Right? So no, when you have a child and you bless a child, you really wish the best for that kid. That's what you're doing. You're asking God's blessing upon him, you become a channel of grace for that child. You still have to work on your own virtues, though. Right? Now, when you work on your own virtues, then all the good things you do is now compounded by your virtues. Right? But it is entirely possible for you and me to bless our children, and the children are truly blessed, and you and me go to hell. It's entirely possible. Because if I spend my life blessing my kids, and I really love them, and that's great, and but I'm not working on my virtues. I'm being lukewarm. I'm not really you know, taking my faith seriously. I'm doing what I have to do, but I really don't care about God that much. I'm not going to go anywhere. You understand? Okay. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.